Thank you, Brother Paul. We're in First Peter chapter 1 here, picking up this morning on our series through First Peter, Thriving in Babylon, as we live between two worlds. And um, in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he's introduced this concept that we are exiles, we're, we're passing through, we're strangers. Uh, there's a sense of which we are not part of this world, and there's a sense that we are sent into this world. And so that's the tension that Peter is trying to help uh, us understand and how to navigate that as sent ones uh, sent out from Jesus Christ, just as Peter was. <clears throat> and the way he does this in verses 13 through 16 is to show us that we have a new purpose. We have a new purpose. So I want you to imagine this morning, as we get into the text here, that uh, you're a tourist here in Maine, if you can imagine that horror, right? And uh, you are poking around an antique shop. How many antique shops are there in Maine? Quite a few, right? And imagine that uh, you're looking for something in particular and wandering around for a while, and this tourist there thinks they, they saw the, the, just the thing. It's a bull, imagine a bull, about eight inches across. Someone had obviously used it for flowers at some point, and it was still a little, you could see a little bit of the soil still in there, a little dirty with soil, and the remains of a, of a few dried up leaves. It looks as though it might have a crack running on one side of this bowl here. The owner of the shop probably, Santique shop probably hadn't bothered much, of, much with it, so it's, it's, it's covered up with a pile of other old stuff, books, and, and uh, bottles, and who knows what else there in the antique shop. And so this tourist here, he fishes the bowl out, and, uh, and uh, he goes and he buys it. And he takes it home and he starts to clean it. And he takes great care with this bowl because he had spotted that this bowl was a fine piece of treasured porcelain. He could, he could repair that crack, but he could get the, the dirt and soil out of the pattern. He could bring it up as, as good as new. And then when it's done, he, he can put it in a place of honor on his, on his shelf to, 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 to hold three or, uh, ornamental blown glass figures and show them off here in this bowl here. It's just what he wanted. And then imagine that the original owner of that bowl who had sold that to the antique shop at the first place turned up the next day at the shop here and he asked for his bowl back. Because he wants to use it again to hold flowers. Well, the shop owner might direct them to this guy who had just bought it, uh, the tourist here. But John, we'll use him, him as a name here, would say that the bowl was no longer available. It's not for sale. And he had bought it and he cleaned it inside and out. He would given it a whole new use for which it was really better suited for. And it would be an insult to just hold it for a few flowers here. And so it is here in 1 Peter 1, 13-16. The good news is we're kind of like that bull. Illustration breaks down in some areas here. But the key word here in verse 18 is this. You know, he says, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain or empty lifestyle conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We're like that bull. We've been ransomed. We've been, we've been bought back like a, like a dirty, filthy object in a, in a junk shop and, and prepared and cleansed and, and prepared for purpose. We, we had been used for all kinds of purposes previously. But that's not what we were made for. Peter talks about 
empty practices, vain conversation, futile practices. God's come into the junk shop here. And Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate price for us, the precious blood of the Messiah. And God's own Son, Peter here is thinking here, that that sacrificial lamb in the Bible, that lamb that was pictured there in the Passover, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, marking the moment when God bought back His people from the slavery in Egypt. And now, Peter says, this death of Jesus, this sacrifice of Jesus, has purchased us, has ransomed us, has bought us back. And that's why Jesus is sent in the first place. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose of God from the very beginning. And so that helps us understand a little bit of verses 13 through 16 this morning where we're going to spend our time. Why Peter can call his readers, and ourselves also included, to a life that is radically different from the way that we were before Jesus ransomed us. And the way it begins is through clear thinking. Clear thinking in the Word of God. You and I are that bowl. Bought in the shop. Cleansed. Put to the right purpose, the right use. Far greater honor than sitting in that corner filled with soil and a few dusty plants. And we need to remind ourselves of that purpose we've been bought for. And don't let any previous owners come, come, come back up and try to force us back into the use that we once had in verse 14. So Peter here describes what we used to be as a state of ignorance. Ignorance. Ignorance, you don't know what you're made for. You go with the flow. You go with the world's flow. But now in Christ, you have a purpose. Now you know, and you've been cleansed for a much finer use. So you live up to that use. You live up to that use. And all this, as we saw last week, here is based on on much of the letter here, um, uh, on on this this truth at the, the dramatic events of a few decades before, as Peter is writing here, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the giving of the Spirit, the start and, and, and rise and spread of, this, of, of, of the movement of Jesus Christ and, and churches here, has, was not a totally new idea. He showed us in verse 10 through 12. God's not starting from scratch here. On the contrary, he tells us in verses 10 through 12, it's a fulfillment. And yes, very surprising ways to us. But plan all along with God of God's divine plan, His promised plan, and what He had promised to Abraham, that in Him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed here through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And those prophets who prophesied these things as they stood between heaven and earth, between two worlds here, between our present time and God's future time here had proclaimed this. And so what we see here from this introduction in verses 13 through 16 is to thrive in Babylon, we need to set our eyes on our purpose. We need to set our eyes on our purpose. So, he has introduced the readers in verse 1 and 2. Describe what God has done for them in verse 2. And then in 3 through 12, as we saw last time, he has, he has um, uh, uh, very uh, uh, deeply and, and uh, richly Explain what Jesus has done and what He's given us in this inheritance that He's given us that's reserved that enables us to walk now in life, to walk now in, the, in, in time and space here in trials. And now in verses 13 and on, He's going to start to lay out, okay, out of this, this is now how you walk as pilgrims. This is how you are sojourners in this life. And the majority of Peter at this point here 
is going to be commands. Commands that God gives us to obey. I think there's somewhere between 69 and 89 commands in the rest of the letter. So, it's, he, he starts off who we are in Jesus, our identity, what we have, what God has provided, and now he says, by faith then, this is how you live. This is how you live as a pilgrim, a sojourner here. And so to thrive in Babylon, first of all, in verse 13, he wants us to set our eyes on our purpose. Now, what is our purpose? Our ultimate purpose is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will extend into eternity. When you were saved, God gave you right then, right there, eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life that will extend beyond your lifetime here on this earth. You're going to have an eternity with Christ. This is your eternal purpose to bring praise to the One who has shed His blood to redeem you. And so he starts off in verse 13 saying, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now that's not a saying we say today very often. Probably not something you said to your kids when you were waiting for them to get into the car. Come on, gird up, right? No. What that means is this. Get your thoughts together. Have a disciplined mind. Start thinking right. And the image of that is in those days with those who would wear robes, a guy who would have a robe on, here he'd have his, his belt, and he would, he would roll up his robe and tuck down the lower part of a robe into his belt here. It would be like you rolling up your sleeves. You're going to go chop some wood or you're going to go and do some physical activity. You're kind of stretching. You're getting ready to go here. And that's what he's telling them here. Center your thoughts on the return of Christ and live accordingly. Escape the, the many, uh, uh, wrong, uh, many ways that the world thinks wrongly here that, in, that, that hinder your progress, that encumber your mind, that weigh you down. And, and start thinking correctly here. And do you know, right living always begins with right thinking. Right living begins with right thinking. Right living begins with right thinking about right sound doctrine. And so he says, with minds that are alert, that are fully sober, set your hope on the grace that's to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. <clears throat> and it's kind of like this. Imagine the night before D-Day, June 6, 1944, when D-Day occurred. But you as a paratrooper, perhaps the 82nd Airborne or 101st Airborne, as were key um, troops in um, getting behind the enemy lines and, um, and uh, pinching the Germans in between the oncoming Allied forces, were getting briefed for your mission. And you had your plan, you had your maps, you knew where you were supposed to be, and then you get on the airplane. And the airplane takes off. And the airplane is flying from England to Normandy, France. And now you're in the airplane. And then they say, open the doors. That's where we are in the book now. Open the doors. Get ready to jump. Get ready to go here. As paratroopers, you have a mission. You have a focus. And here, he's, he's, he's kind of giving the, 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 um, <clears throat> the mindset here that Israel had of old in Exodus chapter 12 <clears throat> and verse 11. Remember the last plague that God uh, sent to Egypt <clears throat> was the plague of the firstborn son, which God made a way of escape through the blood of the lamb that would be uh, spread on the doorpost of the doors. And all those who had taken that spot, spotless lamb and spread that blood on the, on the door of their door frame uh, there, the death angel would pass over and not take the life of the firstborn in that home. 
But what God told the Israelites in Exodus 12, verse 11, was this. He said this, And thus ye shall eat it, the Passover lamb, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He says, be ready to go. The lamb has died in your place. The death angel will pass over. Enjoy the feast, but have your, have your staff ready. Have your, have your walking shoes on. Get ready to go to what I'm going to give you. And so we are here in 1 Peter. We're, we're ready now because of what God has provided for us in verses 1-12 through 12 because of our identity that will never change. We are ready as, as exiles, as sojourners, as pilgrims living in temporary times uh, with, with things that will change, living in shifting sand of the world here. We are now ready to stand on the rock of God and go forward with minds that are alert and fully sober. Now he's going to give us the message from the commander here, what we're to do. This is no training exercise. This isn't practice. This is the real deal. Living and thriving in a world that's hostile to Jesus Christ, thriving in Babylon. And so he says, with minds that are alert, gird up the loins of your minds, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this hope here, this hope is brought to us as we begin to meditate and think in a very disciplined way. Thinking in a new way here. Get your mind set on the new reality. And thinking in a new way is not going to come automatically. It's not going to come by default. It's not going to come if we're spiritually lazy. He's saying, gird up the loins of your minds. Get it in gear here. Get discipline here. It requires effort and concentration and intentionality here. There's no laziness here. He wants us to think this way. To train our minds to think this way with an eternal mindset. If you say, well, that's hard, then you're right. Right? Because what do we have all around us? We have all, all we have is things um, that we think we can, we can see, we can touch, we can taste. Just a temporal world, right? But he tells us to operate out of a superior, invisible reality that we haven't seen yet. That we haven't seen yet. The hope of the return of Jesus Christ and what we will be when He comes. Our glorified state. Now operate out of that. That's what he's saying. So gird up lines of your minds. And then he says, Be sober. Be sober. <clears throat> That's the idea of, of, um, of living in a way that doesn't look like you're spiritually drunk. That you're dull to the reality of God. That you're deadened or, or, or um, uh, anesthetized by the attractions of this world. That you're lulled into drowsiness. Because what happens is when your eyes close to the drowsiness of the world, what are you losing sight of? You're shifting your gaze upon Jesus Christ's revelation of Himself. And you're only going to concentrate on fulfilling earthly desires and living for this world. So you've got to fight to keep your eyes open here by God's power, by God's grace on eternal things. It's like what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 5. <clears throat> Paul puts it this way. He says this, You are all the children of light 
And the children of day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. And the reason he says this is because of our future salvation. Our future salvation. A lot of times we like to talk about our salvation as a past thing, and that's true. There comes a point in time where we become saved, right? And I trust that you're here this morning. You can remember when you became saved. When Christ Jesus saved you from your sin. But in the New Testament, there's also a future trajectory that we're to set our eyes on. And it's the final result of our salvation, our glorification. Our glorification. And as we live in between the two, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. As the scripture calls that being saved. We're being sanctified. We're becoming more like Jesus here. And there's going to be a day when that process will be complete. And that's what we're to set our eyes on. That salvation that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's a way that you can live as dull. And he says, be sober. Be sober. And so I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe this week you were pretty drunk with the things of this world. There were maybe things that you turned to and hardships there that you were setting your hope on. Oh, you knew it was only a, 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 a temporary thing, but still that's where you turned to. And Peter is saying, you can't do that. You have to stop that. If you're going to be a a, a person who is a sojourner, a pilgrim in God's uh, in this world that He's created, living among strangers, living among the unbelievers, living as God's people here, you can't be spiritually drunk in that sense. You must be uh, 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 clear-headed. You must be clear-thinking here. And the way to do that, he says, is to hope to the end, to set your hope to the end. For the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, revelation of Jesus Christ, is another way of him talking about the living hope that we saw in verse 3 and 4. The appearing of Jesus Christ. That we live in the future tense. We live right now in the future tense. We've been justified. That's the past tense. We've been declared righteous. And we live in the right now, the present here, with this future hope. In other words... Our present actions and decisions are being monitored here by eternity. By eternity. That's what we're living for. That's what we're setting our eyes on. Think about an engaged couple. Jess and Beck recently got married here, and they had a time of engagement here. And they made plans for their wedding day, and they made plans uh, to prepare for that wedding there in light uh, 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 in light of that future wedding, um, we went through marriage counseling. Uh, they got house ready. Um, they got uh, uh, things things ready and all set. Um, they had um, uh, Beth had a, had a shower here. Some items that she needed with with this in light of that future wedding. So life could they could be brought together and life could begin in that way. And so it is with us. Christians are to live with this expectation of seeing Christ. Do you live with an expectation that you will see Christ? And that you will stand and rejoice and worship Him forever and enjoy Him? That is what he's saying in the set your hope here 
on the, uh, to the end for the grace that's to be brought in you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a home in heaven, yes, but it's Jesus Christ of heaven. It's the King of heaven that God has brought us to. And so set your hope on the grace that's coming when Jesus is revealed. Maybe you saw the Disney animation uh, Lion King. Young Lion Simba, he's going to be the next king of the king of the beasts here. And when he concentrates on who he's going to be in the future, it gives him good confidence and encouragement uh, to become the king he's supposed to be. But when he loses sight of who he is going to be, he wanders off and he stops acting like the king. But he rediscovers his vision of, 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 of who he's supposed to be near the end of the movie, his behavior changes accordingly here. And that's just a little, small, drop-in-the-bucket picture here of when we as Christians focus on who we will be at Christ's coming. That dramatically changes our behavior right now, doesn't it? Makes our behavior right now important. Remember the living hope that we talked about, the security, future hope? We're going to be saved from any presence of sin. What did you struggle with this week with your pride? How did you not love your neighbor as yourself this week? How did, what, what were the things maybe that you were putting in place of God here as your hopes and things you were trusting in? The believer can firmly say that one day that will not be true anymore. That we will fully love God and love one another. That our pride will be reduced to zero. Live in that way. We've been made alive to future reality. Hell ended for us and hope began with Jesus Christ. We were born in the death row. Now we're born again, he says, to a living hope. Born in the home of the King of the universe. Peter had explored this. A new life had come. Had come. We're, we're guaranteed eternal joy in verse 4. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. doesn't fade away. I share with you about uh, little Leo Belknap, that two-year-old who shredded a thousand dollars of his parents' money. Right? The things we live for on this earth are nothing. They can be taken away from us very quickly. But God has given us an inheritance that is free from the forces of decay, cannot be stained, permanent beauty. It is death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof, and we've been born again into God's family. We've been given eternal life and access to the riches of heaven, and it's guaranteed. We're sojourners and aliens in this, in this world now here. We have a future inheritance that can never perish. will never lose its luster, its beauty. Never be stained or filthy. Never be lost in the stock market, right? We're kept. And this inheritance is kept. It's guarded. The best the world has is now. For the disciple of Christ, the best is yet to come. We cannot forget that. And like Israel in the wilderness... Or aliens and pilgrims as well. A world that's becoming more hostile. But we are not beggars. We have been given a sure title to the inheritance that God has for us. And the Bible says, as you continue reading on after in verse uh, in verse five, it's it's guarded securely to the finish, ready to be revealed, kept guarded in the garrison of God's power, secure. And so, on the basis of those truths, he says. Wherefore, grit up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now here's what he says next. 
So right thinking, now right living. So now he'll say, now live according to your purpose. Set your mind to the thinking about what your eternal purpose is and now live in accordance with that. Walk worthy of your calling, of your vocation here. So to thrive in Babylon, we live for our purpose. We live for our purpose, which is eternity with Christ, which means there's a new walk. There's a new walk. Verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning or conforming yourselves according to the former lusts, the former desires... And your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle. It's not when God saves us. It's not some 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 people just want to keep God close enough to save us, but far enough away to let us do whatever we want to do. That's foreign to the New Testament, isn't it? It's foreign to that. J. Burnham McGee, speaking about holiness, says holiness is something that's really misunderstood. To the average person, holiness means to assume a very pious attitude, become almost abnormal in everyday life. It's thought to be a superficial thing. My friend, the Lord wants you to be a fully integrated personality. He wants you to enjoy life and have fun. I don't mean a sinful kind of fun. But real delight and enjoyment in the life He's given you. Holiness is to see the spiritual life uh, is to the spiritual life what health is to the physical life. You like to see a person who is physically fine, robust, and healthy. Well, holiness is to be healthy and robust spiritually. Peter says, Be holy as God is holy. This is seen in two ways. It is turning to Jesus from our sin, Right? So turning from our sin. But it's also turning to Jesus, right? A delight in who God and His holiness are. And this is, this, is, this is running through your mind continually. And sometimes we think of holiness and we might think of something stale and stiff, right? And mothballs and Victorian age and prude and a prickliness to it. We even talk about it. Well, God is loving, but He's also holy. Or God is holy. And we picture it as a cold thing. But the holiness of God is the beauty of God. The psalmist talks about the beauty of holiness here. It's a warmth. It's like the sunbeams. It's a divine beauty. It means to set apart, yes, from darkness, but to light. There are no ugly traits in God. Not a single ugly trait like there is in me and you. The holiness of the Father, Son, and Spirit that it enjoyed is all about a love relationship they've had. The holiness of the triune God is His perfection, His beauty, His absolute purity of love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Mine, your loves, naturally tend to be perverse, misdirected. His love is set apart from mine in perfection. God's love isn't cooled, but it's overflowing in spotlessness. And this dramatically affects what it means for the believer to be holy. It means to be like God in that way. God isn't like the God of the Vikings, you know, like beer sloshing God here who, uh, you know, just does whatever he wants. This God is a God who serves, who overflows his love. 
And so Jesus would sum up the whole Old Testament commandments and God's law in these ways of love the Lord your God, your Father, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we remember the Ten Commandments, we think of the two the ways they are expressed, right? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But why does he say the thou shalt not? So that you love God, right? With all your heart, soul, and being. And you love your neighbor here. And so that is what it means to be like God in His holiness. To share the, that, that, that we, we, we share the love the Father and the Son have for each other and then we overflow with that love to brothers and sisters with one another commands in the Bible and then also to the lost world. Now you might be wondering, uh, as he says here in verse 16, because it is written, what he's referring to, and he's referring to what he has said in Leviticus, where it is written. And I'd like you to turn to Leviticus 19 for a couple minutes. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 and verse 2. He says... Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, if you were to read the rest of Leviticus, chapter 19, you would find out what holiness looks like that he told the Israelites. It means not turning to idols, right? But coming to the Lord in proper fellowship with Him on His terms. It means not being mean to the poor. It means not lying, but telling the truth. It means not taking, but giving. Stealing in verses 10 through 16. It means in verses 17 and 18, not hating your brother in your heart, but loving your neighbor, he says in 17 and 18, as yourself. Love for the Lord, love for neighbor. That is the heart of holiness. And so if we're going to act in that way and reflect our Father and what Jesus has done for us to wash us in His blood and make us holy, that is how we are to operate. And you can see this traced out in further verses that we'll get to in the next week. Seeing then, you've been born again. Love one another with a fervent heart. So holiness is the beauty and sweetness of God together. The sun of righteousness, the, 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 the pleasant beams. It means to know and enjoy God whose love means becoming more like Him and this love in the truth here. John says, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, John says. For God is love. Now think about that in contrast to the world. And the way you formally walked, he talks about in ignorance. Who did you live for? Yourself. And how did you do it? Well, your different personalities and my different personalities would have done it in all kinds of different ways. But it was all devious. It was all for our own self-glorification. But you've been given here a new nature. You've inherited the nature of your new parent, your father. God is holy. Here at 2 Peter 1.4 says, You are partakers of the divine nature. That is how you can be holy. That is how you can be obedient here. It's not in and of myself here. 
We had been before children of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, but now we're to be obedient children. We were before uh, fashioning ourselves after, after the values of the world. After what motivated the world for self-exaltation, for categorizing everybody, right? For putting people down and lifting ourselves up. That's how we have been formally fashioned. But now we are to be free to serve others and love them because Jesus has done that for us. Chuck Colson described an interview on um, television where Mike Wallace at CBS was speaking with a man named Yehelio Dinor, who was a concentration camp survivor, who testified against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. And Wallace showed a film clip, for, a film clip from the 1961 trial of Eichmann here, who was a key figure in, in the Holocaust. And Dinor walked into the courtroom to come face to face with a man who had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. And Dinor began to sob uncontrollably. And he actually fainted, collapsed in a heap on the floor. And the reason he did was not because he was overcome by hatred, not because he was overcome by fear, not even because he was overcome by the horrible memories of being in the concentration camp at Auschwitz. But he said this. All at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man, he said. And Dinor said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable, capable to do this too. I am exactly like him. And friends, it's the reality of sin in the heart of everyone that, 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 that has patterned itself after the sin and, and, and evil and oppression in this world. And the fact that God now calls you as obedient children... The one who has called you is holy, so be holy means that this has been broken. You have been transformed. And so now live with your eyes on eternity. Let's pray.